And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. It is, of course, in the providence of God that we had snow this morning. If you are here, I am trusting the Lord that you are here for His purposes. It's very possible those who are not here are, are here in the design of God. Two, I wrestled all week with this uh, message. Um, and I'll explain why as we get into this. Um, we're going to read the first three verses of Genesis 12, and we'll take that as a launching point this morning. Uh, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so I'm going to try to explain. This is going to take me a little bit of time. What we're doing in Genesis 12 this morning, and what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, I'm going to try to do this briefly. It will probably not be all that brief. This will be the only message in the sermon series quite like this one because I'm trying to lay a, a framework, a foundation so that you understand what I'm driving at here. I want our Sunday morning worship family, which is not the same as the various discipleship and classes and studies that we have throughout the week. I want our, our worship family that gathers together corporately to, and this is going to sound simplistic, but to understand their Bibles. I want them to understand their Bibles. Um, I want us to understand our Bibles. That probably seems like a very obvious thing for a pastor uh, to say, but I want Christian people, especially Christian people who are gathering here, to understand um, this book, to, to understand it. Um, I want you to know your Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? I'll try to, let me try to use an, an example. I think if I gave everyone who's here this morning, I mean, every, every person except the, the littlest of children, I think if I gave you all a sheet of lined paper and a pen, and I said, let's just take the next 20 minutes, and I ask you, just write down the name of every Bible story that you can possibly think of. You know, don't worry about, you know, making sure you get all the details right. Don't tell the story. Just, just list in list form the name of every and you, I'm going to give you a long time to do it. Just list the name of every Bible story that you can think of. And I bet most, if not everybody here, could list at least a couple of dozen stories from the Bible, which is a lot. That's not insignificant. I mean, you know, 20, 30 stories from, from any one text is a lot to know. I think that we could do that. And you would probably be, I mean, probably be real familiar with a lot of the common ones that would appear. Creation, Noah's Ark. Uh, David and Goliath, that kind of stuff. Uh, Samson, um, all, all that. Daniel and the lion's den. All those would start to appear. And even if you uh, might not think of one on your list, if other people started reading their list, you'd say, oh yeah, I knew that one. I forgot that one. Oh yeah, I knew that one. I forgot. Like there would be a pretty comprehensive list if we collaborated and we just put it all together from memory, not using the text at all. Um, so if most of us tried, I think that we could, we could name a bunch of Bible stories. Um, but what, what I'm concerned with, and I, I see this concern in other teachers and even parents, I even see this concern in, in one-on-one pastoral conversation from time to time with folks. Um, I don't think that we always index, and I know that's a strange word, but I don't think we always index those stories very well. Um, if you are of a certain age, you know what like a library index is like. You, 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 know, you probably went to a library and it wasn't all on a computer. It was you know, a bunch of pull-out trays with cards where everything was cata you know, cataloged and all the books were in order. Um, that's what I mean here. I, I, I think there is a concern that we cannot, um, all of us, index the stories that we know very well. Uh, and what I mean by that is understand where these stories are in the Bible 
And, and what I mean even more than that is understand why uh, they're important where they are. Um, and if you don't have that, um, it's a real challenge, I think, to understand the Bible. Where a story appears in the Bible is oftentimes just as important as the story itself. Um, but we don't learn that way. I mean, that's, we learn by remembering specific events and stories, and we're often not very good at, at indexing those. Now, um, to, I want to use myself as an example. If you ask, by, by the way, I'll say I would be right in that group. Um, up until about 20, 21 years old. And I grew up in the church, went to Sunday school every Sunday, went to all of you know the youth events, went to church every Sunday morning, and tried to listen reasonably well for what you would expect from a teenager, which is probably not that well, but tried to listen. And that is how I would describe. I knew a bunch of stories. I could put them in some kind of a working order, but there was a lot of confusion about where certain things belonged and why certain things happened. I can relate to that. But if you ask me now to start naming stories in the Bible, the difference, I think, between my list and many of the lists that we would compile over the course of the 20 minutes we did this exercise is that my list would naturally fall into order. Um, when I think about the Bible, I think about it from the front moving to the back. So if I was trying to list the stories in the Bible, just all the ones that I could, I would start with the very first story in the Bible, and then by event, event by event, as best as I could remember, and I would forget some things, but as best I could remember, I would just tell you what happens next. Um, and, and that would be relatively simple for me. Because my list is in an order of events, it's, it's easy for me to list. I, I, would, I would proffer a guess and say like hundreds of stories in, in the Bible, if you give me enough time, because I'm not actually, and this is what I'm getting at, I'm not actually listing hundreds of stories. I'm just telling one story, I'm just telling one. And, and all the other scenes, if you will, that are in this story are just flowing one into the next. And, and so it wouldn't be that hard. And what makes it easier for me is it's my favorite story. I mean, we sing Blessed Assurance this morning, and in that song, it's, this is my story. This is my song. Um, this is, you know, this is my story. For the Christian, this is your story. Y you may, you know, really chisel that story down to be, this is, you know, what I know about God, and this is what I know about my sin, and this is my testimony of when I got saved. That story does not exist in isolation from this. This is, the Bible is the story, and, and it's my favorite story. And we're all pretty decent at telling our favorite stories, whatever they are. I mean, some of them, many of us find very exhilarating and others find very boring. So, some of you, uh, you know, can talk, can talk about, you know, stories and fantasy land and, and just go the whole length and, and my eyes are glazed. But, um, you know, we are good at telling our favorite stories. Um, it's a story I know and it makes sense and it's just one from the first book of the Bible to the last. And every time, this is the advantage of this, every time... I'm studying any part of the Bible, whether it's sitting down in Sunday morning like in Steve's, I sat down in Steve's adult Sunday school class, or I'm just picking it up to do a daily Bible reading of my own. Um, every time I'm in an environment where someone is talking about the Bible, my mind is seeing the part of the Bible that we're talking about in the proper context of this one great story. There's no... There's not a bunch of fog and haze around it. It's, um, and I think many people come to Sunday school or worship service, a worship service just like this one. And they, they maybe pick up their Bibles and, and they read, and they get a sensation like they're walking into a room halfway through a movie. Like there's, there's a scene that's being discussed. There's a story that's being, you know, expounded upon. And they see this scene from the Bible, whether, whether they're reading it or whether someone's teaching, and maybe they understand it, maybe it makes sense to them, that one scene, maybe it doesn't, and we should allow for that. I mean, maybe it's just like strangely violent to them. 
It's like, what in the world? This is in the Bible. What am I reading? It's just a scene. And, or maybe it's just like numbers and genealogies and names. And it's like, I don't get it, man. Or, or it's got language like sanctification or justified. And it's, it's almost, I mean, it's kind of English, but it's kind of something else. And there's, there's a, a, a haze over what they're looking at. Um, and whether they understand it or not, um, what they're seeing has no real attachment to a larger story. They may get it. Like they may, there may be a great teacher who just unfolds what they're looking at with real clarity, and they may, okay, I get that one section. But when they leave, that section doesn't fit into any other, into a comprehensive story. It's just one section that they, by the end of it all, they understood. That was it. Um, I understand that. Um, I understand looking at the stories in the Bible as if there is a fog over the text. And you know there's a lot of books and chapters in the Bible, some of them with very strange names, Malachi, Zephaniah, Ecclesiastes, and it's just like this is, this is pig Latin or something. This is, this is very strange. And we believe it's God's word, but we don't have a framework for thinking about it the right way. And, and so I think what oftentimes, and I found this pastorally in talking with people, what happens is people begin to think that the other folks around them have an understanding of the Bible that is so far beyond theirs and that they, they'll never be able to put it together and it'll, it'll never fall into place. And maybe these folks are just smarter than them. Maybe they're just brighter than them. And, and, and I want to I tell you, um, if that's you this morning, I'm sure the Bible just seems like a collection of hundreds of stories and it probably feels like you can never know them all. Um, and you could go to, to church for a thousand years and never remember all these things. And, and that feeling of the Bible being so big and the stories so numerous that you couldn't possibly know all of them, I, I understand that overwhelming feeling. I understand that. I have experienced that. And I want to tell you, it's not a healthy place to live and to stay. It's not a good place to be in. That's my conviction. And that's why um, we're going to be uh, covering the stuff that we're covering in the next seven or eight weeks. Um, I want you to know there's a very strong likelihood that if, if that's you, and you know, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing faces where I know it's you. I know the Bible is, is not one cohesive story. Like, I know it. You know, you know it. Some of you have just told me this stuff is really hard for me. Um, if that's you... Maybe you have told yourself that I'm just not a very good reader or I'm just not a very, I wasn't a good student in school or, you know, other people. Maybe you've tried and, and because it's hard, you've gotten lazy and then you feel guilty about it. And you're like, you, you wrestle with that. I know I should do this. Can't tell you how many times a pastor, somebody's told me, I know I should read my Bible more. I know I should read my Bible more. And, and maybe you can relate to that. The reality, I think, um, is that it has nothing to do with, with most intellects or reading comprehension. or the, It doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, I think that you need help. And yes, you're going to have to pay attention as we go through this, but I think you need help from teaching of the Bible in a summary way. And I know some of you are like, I don't need that because I've got that already. I've been through this. I've got that. It was maybe five or six years ago when I did uh, a Wednesday night um, Bible study here in the sanctuary and just trying to walk through the timeline in summary form of the Bible. And some of you will remember that. And, and, um, and you're like, I, you know, I, I did that. You know, I don't need this. I did that. I, I understand. Um, but I want to make sure as we look at the book of Daniel, which is what we're going to look at next, which I, I think for me personally is an incredibly important text um, I, I, I'll share a little testimony as we go through it, but it's an incredibly important text. As we come into this book that God has given us to see the glory of Jesus, not merely in what has already transpired in Jesus, but what will transpire. As we look at that, I'm under the conviction that we need to come to it together. Together. Not um, with a, a handful of us being able to fit this into the right framework of what's happening and the rest of us just kind of out there floating around, showing up week by week in a fog or a haze. It's very important to me 
that we learn this story, the Bible. Um, now, uh, what I'm going to do this morning is starting from the book of Genesis and for the next seven or eight weeks is try to catch you up to the story of Daniel, to the book of Daniel, okay? So I hope for some of you who are here and you genuinely, you genuinely be like, look, it would be great if I could know this stuff, if I could have a framework of this, but, but I don't know how to do that. What I hope is over the next seven or eight weeks, you will see this as an opportunity for you that, look, all I have to do is show up. If I show up and I pay attention, there's going to be a very clear timeline to get me through all this stuff that just seems hazy and confusing. And Daniel is the kind of book that if we go through the book of Daniel together and we get to that starting point where we're all starting together, if we get to that, Daniel is going to do the rest of the timeline for us of the whole Bible. Like, it will be laid out. It'll be easy to summarize. But if, if you know this morning... I don't have from Genesis to Daniel. I don't have that. I don't have that timeline. Then I'm pleading with you to do whatever it takes to get here and give this a fair chance. Because for me, and this I'll just give you testimony now, when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, and I was wrestling as a young man, what do I believe about the Bible? All I had were collections of stories, and I didn't know what to make of them. It was not until I started to see God's Word as something unified, a framework that which I could understand all those stories, that, that this all came alive to me in my life. That may not be your testimony at all. But if you will just put in the time over the next seven or eight weeks, you can have a framework to understand the Bible in a complete way. I truly believe that. Now, a couple of couple of comments on that you may have to ask questions of a pastor like you might actually have to do that um, and I know for many of you that's just very uncomfortable and uh, and frankly there's a sacrifice of time in that too like you may have to ask questions like if there's something you're not getting or something you're falling back on you may actually have to take the initiative and be like hey um, we're going to something new next week but what does this mean again or what what happened here again I don't understand that, or, I, or maybe I don't believe that. Can, can, you, can we cover this again? You, you may have to do that. Now, from the first pages of the Bible, and I bet you not many people had this on the tip of their tongue this morning, but from the first page of the Bible to the book of Daniel, anybody want to guess how many chapters that is? 850 chapters. That's why, for many of us, the Bible is just a collection of stories. That's why. Because the volume is significant. Uh, so I'm telling you that in the next seven or eight weeks, we are going to try to fly by a chronology of 850 chapters. So these are not going to be normal sermons. And I, I'm, I'm going to confess to you, I was, I was talking to Raymond this morning, my real fear in this is that because the next seven or eight weeks are not going to be what we've come to understand as normal sermons, that... Um, it will not be well received by everybody. Like it's just going to be, this is different. This is not what I what I want to hear on Sunday. And I want you to know, I wrestled with that. I I worked through what I was going to say this morning as an introduction to this, probably four or five times this week, uh, all the way through the evening last night, because I, I there's a part of me that says that's perfectly valid. Like that's a perfectly valid criticism. I want to come to worship service on Sunday morning. And I want to be challenged spiritually. I want the application of the New Testament teaching to Christian people applied to my life in a powerful way. That's what I want. I want that too. And I know that to some extent, although Jesus will be central in every message we receive here, I know to some extent this next seven or eight week period of time is going to be more teaching and less application. I know that. And that's a fear of mine. That's a concern. So I, if you feel any part of that over the next seven or eight weeks, if you're like, hey, this is getting old. When is it going to go back to... to um, some of you may be like, no, this is a great change of pace. I'm sick of the old stuff. This is great. Uh, but, which is perfectly fair too. Um, but I'm, I, want you to, I just want you to hear me this morning. I am sensitive to that. And it, it does bother me. But I don't know of another way to bring our Sunday morning worship family together 
so that we hit the book of Daniel and we actually are together. I don't know of another way to do this. Like if I thought I could trust all of you to be like, hey, there's your homework assignment. Go home this week and make sure you study this. You know, like then I would do that. But I know you people better than that. I know my own heart. Life is busy and full. and, And if we don't do something like this together, we won't get there. And that's why, just being honest with you, that's why you don't hear in any church, really, a ton of Old Testament preaching on Sunday mornings, unless it's in the story, this is a scene from the Old Testament kind of teaching. It's not that the pastors or the teachers don't know the Old Testament. Uh, It's that there is a time investment to get more than just a glimpse at what this story, this scene is about. And there's a price to pay. And what I'm telling you is, we're going to try to pay that price together. And I, I don't think it'll be painful if you're attentive. I mean, no more painful than it usually is to listen to me anyway, but I don't think it will be painful, but it is a cost. And I'm going to ask you to put that work in so that we can be together. Now, um, I've used up a lot of time, and this was a, a stress for me this week, a troubling thing this week, just deciding how much of the sermon time this morning to use explaining to you what we were doing. Um, I've used up a lot of time, but I, I want to jump in now, and this is summary format. You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. Genesis 12 is our target. We are, we are moving there, but Genesis 1, and I just want to summarize a couple of stories this morning to, lay the, to start us off. We're just going to start off. I know these are familiar to many of us, but there are probably people in the sanctuary this morning who are part of our worship family, at least for today, and this is totally unfamiliar. They have never heard these stories before. Um, we start the opening words of the Bible in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first, if we're doing a timeline here, and we will, we, there will be timelines to, to look at as we get through this, is, is creation. At the, the very beginning of it is God created the heavens and the earth. I, I want to tell you now, I believe in, in a literal seven-day creation because that's what I believe the Bible teaches. Now, that's... That's me. I'm, I'm not saying there are some people because of evolutionary theory and archaeological um, um, discovery and then summations based on archaeological discovery and geological record. There are some people who try to interpret Genesis chapter one and two in a way other than a seven day literal creation. I want you to hear me. I don't have condemnation towards Christians who are wrestling with that but I strongly believe they are wrong. Strong enough to say it to you. I strongly believe they are wrong. I believe a Christian can be solid on the gospel and be a Christian and love Jesus and be wrong about this. And I don't think that we are wrong. We teach a seven-day creation because that's what the simplest understanding of the text describes So I understand the impulse to to see something different in creation. But I don't see that in the text. And I want you to hear me. I am a Christian pastor. I believe the text. I believe the Bible. Now, there are portions of the Bible as we go through this together that are open to interpretation because they're described to us in metaphors and similes and in story. Um, that's clearly not meant to depict what's actually being said. There are stories like that in the Bible. But when you look at the creation story, it doesn't appear to be like that. It appears to be very straightforward. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but the Lord is going to have to show that to me, not anything or anyone else. The Lord is going to have to show that to me. And, and when we approach God's Word, we need to approach the Word of God with a humility with an understanding that I could be wrong about something here. I could be wrong. I shouldn't be wrong about the things that are plain as day, but I could be wrong about some of the more difficult things. It's wrong to take an approach towards the Word of God that says, I am infallibly right about everything because this is how I was raised and this is what I was taught and this is what I believe Yada, yada, yada. There should be a humble approach. The authority here is not me or someone else or your mom and dad or your own ideas even. The authority here is the Bible itself. 
Um, so we're encountered right, we encounter right away a, cre- a creation. Now, I could preach a series of sermons on that topic, and you probably hear me starting to chase a rabbit down the trail even with that. I could preach a series of sermons on that, uh, defending creation, um, arguing for the importance of creation theologically, and, and what I'll tell you is this, and, and Craig, I think of you, when, when, you know, because it's the most recent time, yeah, but, but Macy, you too, and, and others. What I'll tell you is this, um, it's good to have a conversation about things that either you don't understand or you don't agree with or you're not sure with a pastor. So this is where you've got to do some work here. If you struggle with creation, the, story, the idea of creation, if, if that's a sticking point for you, you need to call me or send me a message so that we can sit down in your living room or in my living room. You provide me with a, a diet caffeinated beverage of some sort, and, and we will talk through, uh, we will talk through uh, whatever it is that you're wrestling with. And I won't come to that conversation being like, hey, let me prove to you why you're wrong. That's not, uh, that's, we'll have like a, I'll listen and we'll have a conversation and I'll explain my own testimony here because I too wrestle intellectually with these kinds of things. I have. Now I'm settled now, but I wasn't always settled. Craig came over to my house. I remember Craig made a profession of faith, which means he was trusting Jesus Christ. And that was sincere. He believed the gospel. But then we started talking about baptism, and he's like, man, there are parts of the Bible just in very limited exposure. He's like, I don't know if I agree with. And I'm like, well, we need to probably talk about that, right? And he came over to my house, and no kidding, Craig, I mean, he'll be my witness here. We sat down, we started talking, and, and it, was, it was enjoyable, it was good. Um, you know, it's one of those uh, conversations where there are children walking around the house and they're kind of being ignored for the conversation. When Craig looked up and realized the time, and I know this will deter many of you, he had been there for like two and a half hours. Like, that's, we didn't book two and a half hours to talk, but my point here in saying is it's profitable and it's actually spiritually satisfying and life-giving to talk with Christian brothers and sisters about these things. You shouldn't just bury them like, well, I don't understand this thing, so I'm never going to talk about it because I don't want to offend anybody and I don't want anybody to tell me I'm wrong and I'm not sure. That's, that's the wrong approach. So if you struggle with creation... I don't have time to preach for the next 10 weeks on it, but I do have time to talk with you, and I would enjoy that. I like It would be a genuinely pleasurable time, okay? As much as you can stand me, it would be a, gen- a genuinely pleasurable time, which may have just limited that uh, for some of you, but that's, it is what it is. Um, creation is where the Bible starts. Now, immediately after creation... As we move through the very first pages of the Bible, we are introduced, and please don't miss this, to the chief plot line of this story. Some of you look at the Bible, and you probably would struggle to summarize what in the world it's about, and because it seems to be about a lot of different things. Well, it's about the Israelites. Well, it's about God. Well, it's a book about right and wrong. Well, it's a book about how to live your life. Well, it's a book about what's going to happen in the future. Or what's happened in the past, right? All of those definitions are insufficient in and of themselves. In immediately after creation, we are introduced to the chief plot line of the text, okay? So everything has been created. God is present on the earth. And it's worth pointing out as a footnote in your mind for future conversation, the world at this point probably is not recognizable to you or I. It doesn't look anything like the world that we live in. There is no sin. There is no decay. There is no death. God is living with man. He is dwelling with man, at least in some sense, on the earth. There is fellowship there. There is angelic revelation and presence back and forth. Like, this is not the world as you and I are going to walk outside and experience it, or as we experience it in this room. It is fundamentally different. It is ecologically different. It is environmentally different. It is geographically different. God has created perfection, and again, I would encourage you on this. This is a conversation that I would love to have with you, Um, and it's worth having. You will enjoy it. You'll think through it. I think so. Um, But it's worth pointing out, many of the criticisms of of the Bible 
are ignoring the reality of the supernatural presence of God on the earth and the supernatural sustenance of all life on the earth that's described in Genesis 1 and 2. We don't live in a place like that. Now, it's at this point after creation that we are introduced to a being, which I'll call this morning the devil. Uh, There's a reason why third chapter of the Bible we have this being introduced to us. Later on, we'll find out this being is, is an angel who has been created by God, but who is actively in a rebellion against God. He has made a decision that he will pursue his own wants and desires, and there's an effort described to us in the, in the words of the prophets in order to become like God himself, like the Most High. So this is, angels are supernatural beings. When I say, when I use the word supernatural, what do I mean by that? I mean they are not confined by the basic laws of nature as we know it. Like, um, <laughs> you and I are confined by the basic laws of nature. They are supernatural, not in the all-powerful. Angels are not all-powerful but they're not confined by the laws of nature that we are confined by. It's a different plane of being, and yet even in this elevated, created state that he was created to be this holy cherub angel, this, this angel that was on the mountain of God, whatever that is, and it's, it's metaphoric, symbolic, literal, I don't know. That's how it's, des- it's described as in the prophets. He was created to be in fellowship with God, and yet that wasn't enough, which we can probably relate to. He wanted to become like God himself. And this devil who's given the name Lucifer approaches Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and he lies to her. And he tells her that she should not be satisfied with her current situation, which is exactly the error that he has fallen into. And that she should rebel against God's command as well and that in doing so, she will become like God, which is again... That's, that's satanic. That, we use the word satanic. What I mean is that is like the devil that is described to us here. Created as an angel, not enough, not content. Instead, by rebellion, I may become like God myself. And that's the lure. That's the bait. That's the worm on the hook that's dangled before Eve. Um, Eve rebels. Um, also against God choosing um, uh, to follow his wife. Adam rebels. Um, rather than remain faithful to the Lord. So they're both sinners now. They have both joined Satan's rebellion. And I would say unwittingly in the sense that they probably do not have a full concept of what it is they have done, but the rebellion was with knowledge. They understood that part, just not the consequence. And perhaps you can relate to that. There is something broader in the story happening by extension of this sin. Adam and Eve were not just elephants or lions or trees. Adam and Eve, when they are created, are given a special designation. And and in, in Genesis, we are told that God created them in his own image. Meaning, in a sense, Adam and Eve were the crowning gem of God's creation. It doesn't say he created angels in his own image. It doesn't say he created animals in his own image. But in the image of God, he created them, male and female, human beings. And Adam and Eve have just taken the crowning image of God. And they have joined that into a satanic rebellion against him. It wasn't merely an individual thing that they were doing. They were taking the crowning gem, the jewel of God's creation, and they were turning it into a willful act of rebellion. And it says in Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And there is, there is a catastrophe in there. That they were in good fellowship with God and now they are hiding from Him. Um, in the fallout of this, God judges Adam and Eve But, and this is chief to the plot line here, he also judges Satan, this rebel angel. And and the judgment is different from Adam and Eve's. To Satan, he promises destruction. Destruction. Um, God says there will be, from the lineage, from the offspring of Adam and Eve, 
a man who will destroy Satan. And the plot line of the Bible is starting to take form now in Genesis chapter 3. This is what the Bible is tracing. Uh, this Genesis 3.15, I will put, talking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Satan will have an enemy born of a woman, and Satan will bruise this man's heel, as it were, the foot of the enemy. Like, and, and again, this is Satan as a snake, which should tell you in and of itself, the world is not as we know it now, that Satan is communing with Eve in the form of a certain. This is, this is not like walk outside and run into this. And if you think, well, this is all just mythological stuff. They might have believed this in ancient times, but why would we believe this now? Now, Moses wrote this. They were not talking snakes in Moses' day and age either. Okay? The same problem that you would have in believing that there's a, a serpent who is... Moses would have had the same issue, okay? Uh, so don't kid yourself in just thinking, well, you know, those ancient people were all idiots, so, you know, we're much smarter than them, and that's why we realize that this is not possible. No, Mo, they, weren't have, they weren't talking to snakes then either. But, but the, the symbology here is of a snake for a reason. This snake will bite at the, the foot of his enemy, but in doing so, his enemy, born of this woman, will step and crush, crush his head. Uh, there's a sense in which the attack of, of, the, of Satan will make him vulnerable to the destruction that God is promising. That's the idea. Because that's when a snake gets his head crushed, is he, he, uh, on the attack and the vulnerability and the crushing of it. That's the idea. So, Satan's attack of Jesus on the cross actually places him in a position to be crushed under the foot of Christ. That's what we find out. That's the plot line that we're tracking here. Satan is attacking the Son of God, the Messiah that's promised, at the cross, at the cross. But it's not a defeat for God. It is actually the means of God's victory because what's happening at the cross? What's happening at the cross? Jesus is bearing the sin of man, which means... The image of God, the image bearers of God, which Satan originally brought into his rebellion, are being redeemed from that rebellion. His kingdom is being swept out from underneath him, and the way is being paved for man to have earthly fellowship with God again, so that Jesus, this enemy of Satan, will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords on the earth. The kingdom of Satan is being defeated at the cross. He himself is being crushed. And this is a story that doesn't stop at the cross. It continues through the New Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. It's just one story. And the plot line is here in Genesis 3.15. It's cryptic in Genesis chapter 3. But it's there. Now we go from there, and we've only got two more, two more quick things. Stay with me. I know this is not easy. We go from there directly into what story? Cain and Abel is what comes next. Directly into Cain and Abel. There's a reason for that. I believe two prevalent ones. Everything changes because of sin and death. Um, they are left with the hope of this future man who will be born and save them. In fact, there's evidence in the name of Cain that Eve was hopeful that Cain would be that man. They have no concept of the timeline of any of this. They just know this is what God has promised us. An opportunity for redemption, uh, a destruction of the serpent. And you know the story of Cain and Abel. You know what comes next. In that story, we find that God has given, and, and this is important, God has somehow given these sinful people a way to have some sort of fellowship with him, even in their sin, which is a striking thing. Because you leave off Genesis chapter 3 with God kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. And they're running, they're, they're hiding themselves from God. And there's judgment from God. And you pick up Genesis chapter 4 and you find immediately in the text that there is actually a way for God to still have fellowship with man. So God's judgment of them is not an indication that he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. But in order to have fellowship, there's going to have to be some sacrifice, some offering made because of their sin. And we know the story. Abel makes that offering appropriately. He is accepted. Cain makes that offering wrongly. And he's not accepted. And then there is the compassionate warning of God in, in that story, isn't there? Where God actually speaks to this rebel. 
God speaks to Cain and says, look, why are you upset? If you do what's right, won't your offering be accepted? But, but now be careful because sin is at your door. Think of the compassion of the Almighty God talking to Cain this way. Cain ignores that and he murders Abel, which just pause for a second. Um, because some of you are real familiar with the depravity of man. Some of you have had shocking and terrible experiences in life, and you hear, okay, Cain murders Abel. Yeah, people murder each other. People kill each other. Um, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were not familiar with this. This is a shocking new thing to realize. Not only has the presence of sin in human beings created the problem of separating them from God. But in the story of Cain and Abel, we are told immediately that it also leads human beings to destroy things in life that are most precious to them. It is actually a destructive presence in their own life. And this, this is important. Sin is not merely rebellion against God. Sin is a master that makes human beings slaves. That had to be a shocking thing. Okay, it's bad enough that because we have sinned, we can't maintain fellowship with God like we once had it. But now we find that sin in our lives is actually, in a sense, uncontrollable. It becomes a master and a ruler over human beings. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, this is in the New Testament. This is on the other side of the cross, but listen to this from Romans 7 as Paul is wrestling with this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am fleshly. He's saying, I know the law of God is, a, is spiritual. I'm, it's good, but I'm carnal. And he says, I am sold under sin. Sold, like a slave, under sin. There's a sense in which that selling out is Genesis 3. Verse 15 in Romans 7 says, For what I am doing, I don't understand. What I want to do, I don't practice. What I hate to do, I do. And, and what's he describing? He's describing the reality of sin being a master in the lives of human beings in the flesh. The things that I don't want to do are the things I find myself doing. And if you hear the voice of Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and the outcome of God's judgment of what he does, where he's confessing, my, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You, you hear in the words of Cain a person who himself is shocked and surprised at what has happened. Like it's not, this is not a common thing. This is not what you would expect. Verse 19 of Romans 7 says, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Um, if you know people who are struggling with addictions, you can relate to this passage. Uh, if you are struggling with anger, if you find yourselves often identifying as a bad husband, as a bad father, as an insufficient mother, an insufficient wife, and it's because of moral failings, how you know I should be, and yet this is how I am. If you find yourself as a bad employee, you find yourself as a violent person, you find yourself as an angry person, you find yourself as a bitter person, if you can relate to any of these things, you can relate to what the Apostle Paul is saying here, that I know what I ought to be, and yet this is what I am. What does he say about this? He says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I love what I find in the moral instruction of God's word. But I see inside of me, this is Romans 7.23, a different kind of law. Warring against the law of God that I love in my mind. And he says, oh wretched man that I am. He says, this law that's at war with what I know is right it's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. It's mastery. By deceiving Adam and Eve and leading them to embrace sin, they have become enslaved to sin by the hand of Satan. They have not become like God. They have become Slaves, citizens of a different kingdom. And we see the evil of this in this unthinkable catastrophe of a son murdering 
another son. In the chapters that come after Cain and Abel, this is an important point, and we'll close with this point. It's the last one I'll make this morning. In the chapters that come after Cain and Abel, more than a thousand, probably two thousand years pass in a couple of chapters. More than, more than, more than a thousand, more than fifteen hundred. Perhaps a couple of thousand years pass. Which brings me to, a real, like I said, a really important point worth considering. The Bible is not a history of the world. The Bible is not a comprehensive history of all that's taken place in the world. It does not claim to be that kind of book. There are people who criticize the Bible and who attack the Bible because it ignores lots of world history. And I'm telling you, those people either do not understand what the Bible is, or they do understand, and they're pretending naivety in order to attack it. The Bible is not meant to be a comprehensive history of the world. Rather, this is a story of God's redemption. It's about this man who's going to come. And we're told in the beginning that creation has been ruined by sin. And the next 1,100 chapters of the Bible tell us what God has done and what God is doing about that. He wants to redeem his creation. He is going to fix what sin has ruined. That's the story of the Bible. When someone attacks the Bible by saying, well, this book doesn't say anything about the ancient Sumerians, just say, yeah, you're right, yeah, it's not in there. The book doesn't say anything about you know, South America. So it can't be, can't be you know, from God. God would have known about South America. Yes, God knew about South America. No, it doesn't say anything about South America. It's not a book about South America. It's not a book about the Middle East. It's not a book about the United States. It is a book about a creator who's going to redeem his creation. The Bible contains what is essential for us to know for faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Now, in closing this morning, uh, I do want to draw your attention back to the three verses we read in Genesis chapter 12. And this is our target. This is what we'll aim at. The Lord said to Abram, and right there I know there's a fog over some people's minds. I thought it was Abraham. That's one of those fogs where if you don't understand the stories in the context, you, you start... To, it's like, well, it seems like everybody else here is smarter than me. Don't worry, we'll get there. But it says, now, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country and get away from your family and get away from your father's house to a place, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And if you pause there, that all seems perfectly reasonable. I mean, I wouldn't say that to someone. But God has the power to say that to someone. It's perfectly reasonable. Okay? Leave your family. Go to a land. I'm going to show you where to go. I'll give it to you. From your offspring, I'll make those people there in that land a great nation. I'm going to be with you so that people who are your enemies, I will make my enemies. And people who are your friends and allies, I will bless. Like all that, okay, that's perfectly reasonable thing. Like I could, I could see Abraham accepting all that until you get to the last part of verse 3. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth? Your family? My family? Your people? My people? Across what timeline are we talking about here? This is the vastness of God's promise. And this is why we're tracing the life of Abraham in the Old Testament. There are lots of people who have asked me over the years, I don't understand why the Bible is about one little people group in the Middle East. What about the Aborigines? You don't understand. This is not about one little people group in the Middle East. This is about the man promised in Genesis 3 who will redeem a fallen creation, who will fix the things in your life that are ruined, who will fix the thing that were ruined in your parents' lives, who will fix the things that will ruin your children's lives. This is about one man, one man with the power to undo death itself. That's what we're following here. And because this one man has the power to undo death itself, he is a blessing in the offspring of Abraham to all the families of the earth. 
all the families of the earth. I don't know what you believe this morning. I think I know what some of you believe. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> I think I, I don't know what you all believe this morning, but there is no greater purpose in life than knowing Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing to your family that you can provide for them than being a man or a woman who knows Jesus Christ. This man is not just a story or a man. He is the story of a creator who designed you and who has suffered through the rebellion and the decay and the destruction of sin in order that he might save you even at the cost of his own blood. In Christ, in Jesus, all the families of the earth can be blessed. And this story is all about him from the front to the end. It's all about Jesus. Even when it seems it's about tabernacles and temples, it's all about Jesus. And I appreciate, brother, I appreciate the effort and the difficulty in trying to make that point at 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning to a bunch of people who have rolled out of bed and fought the snow and showed up and don't like being given a handout and being described. Like, I appreciate the effort of that. I appreciate the effort on Wednesday nights of wrestling with minor prophets, gentlemen, I appreciate the effort of a Thursday night Bible study designed to survey the books of the Bible because Steve has a passion that the people, at least in our church, have an opportunity to understand something that maybe they don't understand. And we're going to spend an amount of effort in that on Sunday morning too. I hope what you see as you come back week after week is a book that is one story about one man who is going to destroy Satan and redeem us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it's entirely impossible that this is far too ambitious for us. It is a step of faith for me to preach this way on Sunday mornings. Because I don't want to lose people. I don't want to lose their attention. I don't want to lose their participation. I don't want them to suffer. But Father, by faith I ask that you will help us to see the beauty of this story of your son Jesus Christ in a more full, in a more comprehensive, in a more satisfying way so that we will worship you, so that we will know you, so that we will see the events of this world not as mere circumstances around us, but as the workings of a sovereign God. Save us from our sin. Release us from the captivity of the slavery of this law of sin that wars inside of us with what we know is right. Purify us. Strengthen us. And when we have failed and failed and failed and failed and failed, Assure us once again with your consistent, unfailing, faithful love and fellowship. Thank you for the forgiveness which your son has purchased for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.